We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We're the men from Moto, and you're listening to episode 93, Angler Shooting. My name is David Seville, and I have Travis Sowers with me this week. How are you, sir? I am fantastic, David. How are you? I am great. And before we get started, I must say that uh, we are... We have preview cards this week for Ultimate Masters, courtesy of Wizards of the Coast. They were kind enough to give us these preview cards for your enjoyment, so maybe we should just hop right in? Yeah, I'm down. Let's hop. All right, let's hop. So, for those that don't know, uh, Ultimate Masters is the, quote, last Masters set for the foreseeable future. Wizards has said this is kind of their last hurrah. Uh, They're going to shelve the Masters products for the next foreseeable future. Um, so they're kind of dumping all of the goodies in here. I don't know if you've seen, uh, you're not really a paper player, I understand, but um, I don't know if you've seen the Ultimate Masters box toppers, which are kind of masterpiece cards. Not really masterpiece, but like, uh, they almost look like altars. They're like full bordered or full art cards, um, uh, mythic cards from the Masters set. Um, and every box, every paper box get one. gets one. They, they look kind of cool. Um, they tucked a lot of goodies in here. There's like Liliana of the Veil and there's Karn and there's all these amazing things. So people are, are kind of hyped about it. Um, if you're into master sets, if you're into modern, it looks like there's a lot of really good staples for modern. Our preview cards are up there, even though they're not mythics. Um, but I'm still excited to, uh, to see how the master set plays out from a draft environment. Um, the price point online looks like it's pretty good. I think it was 21 tickets for, uh, for a non-Phantom draft, if I remember correctly. But I imagine that you can do the Phantom drafts just like you always can with your, your 100 play points, your 10 tickets. Generally speaking, I have been super happy with the master sets from a draft and play perspective in the past. So I'm, I'm excited to play with this. And like, honestly, if they're going to give me preview cards, I want them to be commons. I'm going to get to play with a draft. So I'm, I'm happy to have these. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's, let's play a little bit of spoiler card. Guess who here? So I'll give you the first hint. What's my favorite draft set from recent memory? Cons of Tarkir. Bingo. So now these aren't necessarily, they're not from Cons of Tarkir. I don't remember. I think they're actually from Fate Reforged. One of them was from Cons, and one of them was from uh, Fate Ah, Reforged. So you know, you know for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, The mechanic is the Sultai mechanic. That'd be Delve. 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 And both of these You're really angling to stretch this out, aren't you, David? I am. And both these cards are common. So what are the best two common cards with Delve from that era of limited magic? I mean, Treasure Cruise is obvious. Yes. Ding, the ding, other ding. One, maybe we could argue some, um, but what do you think it is? Um, well, actually, I would say Murderous Cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> but I think, that's what I was going to say. But I think top three would probably be Treasure Cruise, Murderous Cut, and Gourmet Angler in there if you're going with commons. Yeah. So, two of our two... two, two are, sorry. 
Two of those three cards happen to be our preview cards. The first one is Treasure Cruise, and the second one is Legacy All-Star, I believe? Gurmag Angler. Yeah, it has seen play in Modern and Legacy. I'll also mention, like, I want Dave to read out the cards and mention this, but uh, Limited is one of the few places you can actually play with Treasure Cruise. It is banned in Modern, banned in Legacy, restricted in Vintage. You can play with it in Commander, which functionally means it's restricted there because you can only have one copy anyway. So, like, this is an exceptionally powerful card. There's a reason it's banned everywhere. I forgot it was banned in Modern. Yeah, this is banned in a lot of places. Wow, I take for granted because it was it wasn't it never got banned in standard. And so it was this it was in this weird position where it's banned in modern and you can play it in standard and nobody was drafting cons anymore. So like that's like the only place you could play it. And I do remember it getting restricted or did it get banned entirely in one of the vintage formats? I guess it I guess yes. it's legacy. Is it is it banned entirely? Banned entirely in Legacy, restricted in Vintage, so you can have one copy in Vintage. Restricted. So that's how powerful this card is. Now, I'll read the card here. So Treasure Cruise is 7 and a blue for a sorcery. Uh, It's common in this set. I believe it was common in, in the cons block as well. It has Delve. And Delve is each card you exile from your graveyard while casting this spell pays for one generic mana. Um, so you can exile seven cards from your graveyard, one blue, and you're casting this as an, an sorcery speed ancestral recall because it draws you three cards. So why is this a powerful limited magic card? Why is it just powerful in general, but limited? Uh, let's look at it from that perspective. Well, in cons, like if you were super lucky, maybe you got a fetch land because you were probably money drafting that anyway at the time. They were qu- worth quite a lot there. There were also ways built into the the colors uh, blue, black, and green to kind of get things into your graveyard. And that also naturally happened as you were trading off creatures. So there's some stupid stuff you could do with this in constructed formats where you'd play a bunch of cantrips, then play this and draw more cards for one mana and then start playing more. But in limited, it was basically a very flexible draw spell where you could just trade off some creatures... You know, use your removal spell and then delve to cast this and refuel your hand. So cons was a relatively slower set. It also had plenty of mana sinks, but like you weren't sad to trade off a morph and then, you know, get this back. And we don't know if there's going to be morphs. I always think these master sets are a lot of fun because we can look at this card and like David and I have played with it in cons block. Uh, but we we don't actually know how good it's going to be here. Like if this is a super fast format, it may not be all that great. Like, I, I think if you put this into the current uh, Guilds of Ravnica format, nah, it'd still be pretty good, wouldn't it? But, like, I could see this being in Gatecrash, for example, or Zendikar, and people being like, maybe I don't have time for it. Um, mm-hmm. But no- nonetheless, just having the flexibility of you can tap out to cast this and usually be able to cast it for four mana or five mana, and you can work it into whenever it's convenient for you to cast it. Yeah, and there's um there's a lot of turns where you sequence, um you know maybe you sequence your attacks first and you get a bunch of trades in combat and then you cast this for like two mana and then draw an uh, something you can follow up with like a three drop or a four drop or a five drop or something like that and follow up after you cast this for cheap. So I think the a lot of the potential comes from being able to cast this for as cheap as possible and double spelling or triple spelling on a turn. I've had turns of limited in cons block where, you know, I cast this for one blue and then played two more spells and just completely took the game over. So yeah, um, there, there's definitely some potential there. Um, on the, on the flip side of this, um, 
I mean, we can talk about this in regards to Gurmag Angler too, but a lot of the problems this card can bring you, and it's not all, you know, roses and, and sunshine and rainbows here, is, you know, unlike a card like a Divination or something like that, you usually can't cast this early. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking to smooth out your land drops, for example, this card doesn't necessarily do that uh, because it can be so expensive. And if you don't have the luxury of getting things into your graveyard, um, I expect in this set that there will be some ways to fuel your graveyard. If we're going to have Delve, there's usually some kind of, um, you know, enabler for Delve, whether that be a creature that mills yourself um, or, you know, something like I'm thinking like, I think it was Rex. Rec- Rakasha's Secret or something like that. Rakasha's Secret. Where Rakasha's Secret. Like, remember with that card? I only remember that was a mind rot that milled you for two, and it was so good. It it was. um, But if you have, if you're lucky enough to have cards like that that fuel out your treasure crews or your other delve spells early, um, you know, you can really take control of the game just by having these very efficient turns and having a bunch of cards in hand when you're done those turns. So that's kind of the upside of of the delve mechanic. The downside, another downside of this is that um, Treasure Crews being so expensive, you kind of have to be aware of how many of these types of cards you have in your deck. How many Delve cards would you usually be okay running in your average Cons or, or Fate Reforged limited deck? It was usually around five, with not all of them being as expensive as Treasure Crews. Mm-hmm. I believe there was a 3-3 flyer with Delve for six, and like... That one was kind of fine. I, I, I may be off on some of those numbers, but like I could include that and usually cast it for four or five and be pretty happy. Um, and then do be aware, like if you were playing something like Rakshasa's Secret, and again, we, we don't know that that's going to be in here or what's going to be in there, but when you cast that, it put a card in your graveyard and then it milled you for two. So you casting that spell basically was a dark ritual and a mind rot as long as you're playing Delve cards. You're getting that three mana back off of those cards and you're milling you're you're getting two cards out of your opponent's hand. So like once you cast the treasure cruise, if if you don't use all of the mana for it, like maybe you you spend five mana and then only exile three cards, maybe you've still got one or two left. And then the treasure cruise is still there. So like you, you can kind of chain these together, but you don't want to take a deck that's like all delve cards that are, you know, seven and eight mana cards because you're just never going to be able to cast them all. Yeah, exactly. Um, and now we're going to look at the Gurmag Angler. We can kind of talk about these two cards, you know, in, in tandem here. But the Gurmag Angler is six and a black for a 5-5 five, five zombie fish with Delve. And that's it. Yeah, you look at something like that and you don't think it's going to be busted. And then you play with it and it was just really good. Now, we'll need to know what the stat line for this particular set is before we can say that a 5-5 five, five is awesome. But frankly, I don't remember a set... Uh, even in the master sets, where a 5-5 wasn't just a house, mm-hmm. right? Like, Colossipede was absurd in Cat. Like, the thing was just huge. I-, I loved playing with that. And then we've seen, like, Dowser of Lights in the the recent Guilds of Ravnica set, where it's a 4-5, and you're like, oh my god, that thing's so big. This is kind of a 5-mana five 5-5 five if you've just traded off a couple cards. Uh, and it just gets better from there. Yeah, you're generally not casting it before turn 5. There's times where you can if you're like hyper aggressive about trading off your creatures you know maybe you have a death touch creature you trade off early or or a you know a card like a burglar rat you just throw in and chump block or something like that um if you can get this out on turn four 
obviously it's insane. Turn five is also very, very good, especially in black. Black doesn't normally get kind of these like five fives for five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also has that upside of just like, again, like playing two spells in one turn is huge, right? You, you, you pull this off the top on, on turn eight or nine or something like that. You cast it for one or two mana, and then you still also have like a three drop or like a divination or a removal spell you can cast or something like that on the same turn. And you can get a lot of tempo, um, just by setting up your delve and making sure that you're casting your spells as efficiently as possible. Yeah, Delve was a, a really, really good mechanic. We've seen it, I think, twice now. I think it was originally in, in like, the Time Spiral block. Uh, and both times, it's just been exceptionally powerful. There were multiple Delve cards that were banned. Like, Dig Through Time got banned as well. Uh, like, all of them were very powerful effects. When you start thinking about things that are broken in Magic, being able to get a discount on the mana cost is something that is 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 usually pretty broken. That's why Moxes were too good and Black Lotus was too good, for example. Uh, Delve was an attempt to balance that somewhat, uh, and and I do feel like Delve was balanced, right? Like it, at least with these cards that we're talking about from a limited perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's still just a way to get a huge discount on the mana cost for the, the cards that you're playing. So it, it's going to be powerful, and I'm looking forward to playing with Delve again. Yeah, it was it was balanced enough to not be banned in Standard. And unfortunately, the limited and you know legacy-style mana bases as, and cantrip bases just make Delve kind of kind of utterly ridiculous in some cases. So um, hence why Treasure Cruise was banned. Now, Grimbang Angler is a pretty fair Delve card. Um, mm-hmm. especially in a, in a format like modern, because in modern there's, um, you know, a lot of very good, very efficient, very cheap removal. So quite frequently, you know, your Gurmag Angler is getting Path to Exile or something like that. And, you know, you're probably down mana in that exchange. Um, but it's just making use of an, an additional resource, in this case, particularly the graveyard. So I think it's a really cool design space. And I do look forward to seeing what other delve cards, like I said, I hope Murderous Cut is kind of in here, because I think that's a really cool removal spell, even though there's probably just better removal skills that'll get packed in this format um you know dig through time would be kind of a neat card if it wasn't banned so there, there's some pretty cool delve cards i'm looking forward to seeing what they uh what they come up with absolutely absolutely i like i said i've enjoyed all of the masters sets that i've drafted modern masters one wasn't my favorite um i felt like that one was a little bit too on the rails but that was their first go and i really feel like they understood it from there and and created a limited environment that was not only fun to try once or twice and get some cool cards, but fun to just draft for two weeks. Uh, I would be drafting Vintage Masters right now if it was out. I'd be like, sorry, Dave, no podcast. I got to draft Vintage Masters. <laughs> um, and and like it ranges all between there, but all, all of them were fun to draft at least a couple times. I hope this one lives up to the same, especially since it's going to be the last one for a while. I hope they really hit it out of the park with this one. Well, they're going to go out with a bang. Absolutely. Thanks again to Wizards uh, for the the preview cards. It's uh, always good to be part of the spoiler community. Um, And uh, I look forward to seeing. It looks like all of them drop on the same couple of days. So we should have full or at least half of the set review or half of the spoiler list when this podcast goes goes live. And then the other half, it looks like, comes the next day. So it's going to be a nice little little treat. And I believe the set comes out early December. Which is also kind of crazy because they kind of just dropped us on it, like dropped it on us out of nowhere here. Nobody knew it was coming really, and um, all of a sudden there it was. Oh, and by the way, it's happening before Christmas. So, yeah, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. This will replace your cube options before Christmas on on Magic Online. It looks like cool, cool. All right, so well, let's get into the topic. 
of topics of the day. First off, um, Magic Arena had a patch this week. Uh, included in that patch was matchmaking with friends. Did you, have you had a chance to try this out yet? Haven't tried it yet, but we're going to try it a lot tomorrow. Yes, so this is kind of a weird episode because we're recording it on the Thursday like we normally do, but we can't release it until the Monday because of the spoiler cards. So we're going to be talking about the Men From Moto Friday Night Magic as if it's in the future when in reality it's actually in the past. Does that make sense? Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. The the time okay we just talked about cons block so the time stream is all messed up here. Yeah, but, clearly. But basically, what uh, what we're looking to do with the the challenge system is we're looking at running men from Moto Friday Night Magics. Um, yeah, you're doing a Friday afternoon magic on your stream, and the prize for your stream, I believe, is somebody gets to come on stream and troll you. Ha! That's one of them. So I looked at this as European Friday Night Magic. Mm. So it's it's noon New York time, but that puts it about six p.m. for most of Europe. So a lot of the and I have a lot of European viewers just because of when I stream. Uh, so they were all interested in that. So the idea with this, at, at least with mine, we're going to do a single elimination tournament. Uh, it's going to be best of one constructed, so standard. Uh, the winner of the event, unless it's me, then it would be second place because I'm playing yo, gets to come on the stream and do a draft with me. And I figure they can either you know ask questions and learn how to draft. Uh, they can promote their stream if they're a streamer and talk about what they do and kind of get a showcase in front of my audience. Or if it's somebody like Dave or Tommy or, you know, various other folks, maybe they just want to have me pick awful cards and then watch me play with them. Any of that's fine. So you, you come on, you're the guest, we'll pick what you want and have some fun. I figured a prize might get some more people interested. There you go. Um, and this this is going to be the inaugural one, too. We're hoping that it goes really well and we can have a lot more of these. Yeah, and we could maybe do different formats, maybe do best of threes. Like, we could do all sorts of stuff with this um, and, you know, maybe even come up with some different prizes and stuff like that. But the the main point is just to kind of start using this this feature of being able to play with specific people and kind of see what we can do with it. And yeah, to have it, some fun with the community. Oh, for sure. Our, like, the communities, your, your stream community is the best. You know, we have a lot of really cool listeners. Um, people come in my stream all the time, and, and they're pretty good, too. So... Um, I look forward to hanging out with all these people and actually being able to play Magic with them. So uh, it's going to be really cool. We're also doing kind of a, a West Coast US Friday Night Magic. Um, I unfortunately cannot run that one this week, but I do have it set up where one of the volunteers from the community will be running that. Uh, no prize on that one, but it looks like it'll be uh, hopefully a good event too. We've got, I want to say, about 14 people that are interested in that one. So uh, if all goes well, we'll be doing that again and again and again. And uh, we'll hope to see you there sometime in the future. Yeah, come play some cards with us. It's fun. Absolutely. All right. The actual main topic that we wanted to talk about today, and it's kind of a, a grab bag topic here, um, but uh, because we did draft 101 and 102, uh, I had the idea of maybe let's talk about um, some quick tips, some like th two to three minute tips for, for new players coming to Magic, or even players that have played Magic before, but maybe they're not uh, at where they want to be skill-wise and they want to kind of maybe get to that next level. Um, we've got a bunch of little tidbits here, things that we're going to talk about, things that you talk about on your stream a lot, um, and things that we've talked about in the past on, on past podcast, po past podcast episodes, say that three times fast. Um, and we're kind of just going to amalgamate a bunch of them down into about a 30 minute segment here. And we're not going to delve into them too deep, but we are going to touch on them and we're going to give you kind of the, the bird's eye view of the strategy or, or the concept um, and you keep in mind that these aren't, 
you know, 100% strict rules, but they're more general guidelines. Um, just like all things in Magic. Magic is a complicated game. There's a lot of things going on. These are just general guidelines to hopefully help you become, a, you know, a bit of a better Magic player. If we can get you a couple of extra percentage points from, from these quick tips, um, I think mission accomplished from our end. Yeah, I had somebody on, on the stream say that they didn't feel like they got quite as much out of Draft 102 as they did 101. They were like, man, the first one revolutionized my thoughts about Limited. And the second one, I felt like I got a little better. And I really feel like if there's a scale of experience points that you get, and 100 is the cap, that like the Draft 101 episode probably gets you from 0 to 40. And Draft 102 probably gets you from 40 to 45. And we're looking to maybe take you to 48 with some of these and let you dive deeper. So it's it's that first one, once you understand the fundamentals, that is going to give you the most growth. And after that, we're just looking to get you tinily better in little increments um, as you go. And like, I'm still doing this. I'm still an active participant in learning things as I'm continuing to play. Because I, I don't think I'm the best limited player that has ever been. But perhaps with continued study, I will be one day. And uh, these will apply to, some of them will apply to limited specifically, some will apply to constructed specifically, and then some are just general overall gameplay tips. Um, and and some of them can even be framed, not necessarily in the context of magic specifically, but just in gaming or competitions in general as well. So um, we hope that you get some value out of this and let's go. Let's see if we can fit it in in the 30 minutes. All right. Show me what you got. All right, so the first one, this is something that you talk about all the time and you hash it out. And I wanted this to be the first one because you get somebody coming into your stream pretty much every day talking about this one. And it is Mulligans in Limited. So the podcast episode we talked about this on was podcast number 18, You Mulligan Too Much. You can go back and listen to that one in full. And it is probably one of our most listened to podcast episodes because you talk about it so much on your stream. But the, the general rule of thumb is, is that you mulligan too much in limited. So Travis, when you say that, what do you mean by that? You mulligan too much. What I mean by that is a lot of people play magic first in some sort of constructed format. Uh, anyone that's coming to arena before they ever do their first draft, they'll have had to have played some constructed to be able to get there just to finish the quests and get started. Uh, a lot of people learn at the kitchen table with their buddies, with their standard decks or their modern decks or whatever it is. And they're used to how mulligans work in Constructed. And that's kind of what they're carrying with them into Limited. Or they've watched someone, say a streamer or a Pro Tour player, who's an excellent Constructed player. Maybe they're a master at Modern. Like I, I'm thinking of... Now, I, I, I don't know that Daniela actually plays a lot of Limited. I've never seen her do this. But I'll see her go to three with her Suicide Blue decks in Modern and still win. Like, she knows exactly when to mulligan, exactly what cards she's looking for. And if the hand doesn't have them, has no problem sending it back to find them. So, like, if you get somebody like that and then they come in to play limited and they've drafted a specific deck, they may think that they're looking for a specific card or that they need to mulligan until they find one. Or that maybe three lands and a four drop just isn't good enough. So, th those those are sort of the things that I'm talking about to begin here. And the, the place to kind of, like super short version there used to be a lot of data collected about magic online that is no longer the case but in analyzing several hundreds of thousands of games 
there were some hard and fast rules that began to emerge. And again, this is a, a very overview. Go listen to the entirety of episode 18 if you want all the nitty gritty. But the overview is when you mulligan in limited specifically, you're shaving off somewhere between 7 to 10% of your win percentage. So if, if I sit down against a random player, it's about 50 to 50 to win. Now, maybe I'm a much better limited player and I'm actually 52% to beat this particular opponent. doesn't matter. Once I, I mulligan, I'm shaving off some of that percentage points. And the reason why is because that card in your hand is so much more valuable and limited where you're likely to trade resources. It's the reason that a card like Divination is good because I'm now up two cards on my opponent. Or why using an instant speed removal spell, you know, or even just any removal spell after Dave has cast uh, a hawk and then put Maniacal Rage on it, now I feel like I'm ahead because I got value two for one. So any time I can, I can get that two for one in gameplay, I'm excited about it. As soon as you click that mulligan button, you're basically giving your opponent a free two for one against you. And the other big thing to remember is, is if, as you're looking at a hand and evaluating it, when you mulligan, you're going to draw less cards. You're not necessarily going to draw a better hand. Like, there's absolutely no guarantee that your mold of six is going to be better than your mold of seven. So, my kind of bow on this is in constructed, mulliganing is very different. Once you know a matchup and, and you know specifically what cards you're looking for, um, like mulligan until you find them, mulligan until you need them. In limited, a lot more hands are keepable than people think. Like, generally speaking, all two landers and all five landers are keepable. End of discussion. Like, I'm, I'm just keeping all of those and we're not going to talk about it. A lot of one landers are keepable when you're on the draw. And a lot of six landers may even be keepable when you're on the draw, depending on what that six is. Six lands in a Wrath of God? Let's talk. For me, the rule of thumb is what are the odds that I get to play magic with this hand? And I know you don't like that term, but my definition of playing magic is do I get to cast spells this game? Right? That That is my definition of playing magic. If I get to play magic in a game, I have a chance to win. Generally speaking, I feel like I have a chance to win. This is before the cards are on the table. This is before I know what my opponent is playing, if it's game one or whatever. Maybe we're best of one, you know... I sit down and I look at my opponent and I look at my hand and I have three spells and four land. It's like, great, I'm playing magic. I got a chance to win. That's what I look for. So when I look at a one lander, right, if I hit a land and I and I have two drops in my hand, I'm playing magic. I calculate, obviously you calculate those odds and you say, well, I'm 75% to hit my first land. That means I'm 75% to play a game of magic, which means if I think that my chance of winning is 50-50, if I'm playing a game of magic, I should probably keep. If my odds of playing magic are way less than that, then I have to start weighing that against that odd, like that random six card hand, that 40% or 43% chance to actually win if I go to six. That's that's my bench line. And that's really served me well so far, right? Like, sure, you get the feel bad and you need to get over this to, to kind of get to that next level when it comes to mulligans, I think, is you need to get over the fact that the one time you keep a one lander and you brick on lands and you scoop them up and you're like, well, that wasn't fun at all you need to remember the three other times that you draw your land off the top and you play your two drop and then you draw your third land and you curve out on your opponent and you just steamroll them because your hand was so good. Yeah. That's what it, you need to remember. Magic doesn't care how you feel and neither does the math. But uh, honestly, it, 
Like I had somebody ask in chat, what do you do when you have a one lander on the play? And I'm like, you feel really sad and then you mulligan it. Like mm-hmm. generally speaking, I'm not telling you to keep one landers on the play. And if you're not comfortable keeping a one lander on the draw yet, don't do that. I'm saying I have been watching other streamers and see them have a hand that has, you know, three lands of, uh, 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 I've seen a four lands with a four drop of uh, a four drop, a five drop. And I think like a, some sort of late game spell. I can't remember if it was a six or a seven. And they were like, well, this hand doesn't do anything. I'm going to send it back. And I'm, I was just mind blown. Mm-hmm. Like, like a two drop or a three drop is good for you. You put them in the deck and more lands are good for you. Cause you could play the four and then the five and then the late game spell and you're pretty good to go. So like, I, I almost really feel like any hand that has two to five lands, like don't just stop thinking about it and just keep it. Yep. Um, once you see the cards from the top of your deck, you'll be surprised at how keepable those hands are. Cause a lot of people will factor in like, well, I need this many lands to even cast the spells in my hand. But you could just draw lower casting call spells and cast those. Yeah. You have to think of your opening hand as your your opening seven plus the top three cards of your deck. Yeah, I think we actually and, talked about that in the podcast. Yeah, and then that's a that's a really good way to look at it, right? So, you know, if you want to do that exercise, build yourself a limited deck in paper, draw seven, and then draw three more and and, and look at that as a whole instead of just looking at the seven in a vacuum, right? That's that's the key. Once you can think about what's on top of your deck and factor that into the math, I think that takes you to the next level. Yeah, and I think the last point I want to make about this, and I'm, I know I'm going a little longer on this one, but it's one that I'm quite passionate about, is when you mulligan in constructed decks, you're looking for something specific. Whenever you do it in limited decks, you're almost always only looking for either land or spell, and you kind of don't care what it is. Yeah, you'd love to hit your best three drop, but they're kind of all interchangeable if you're curving out. Like, it doesn't matter whether you have the 3-3 the three, three with a cool activated ability or just a 3-2 elephant. Like, you just need something that you can play on turn 3. So, like, being down that card is huge. Actually, here's my last thing. If we could sit down and we're playing, and Dave said, do you mind if we just start the game with me having a divination on the stack? I would say no. But every if I mull, I would say no every time. But as soon as I mulligan, I'm basically putting a divination on the stack for my opponent. So just... Bear that in mind when you're thinking about it and weigh it against the fact that your your mulligan to six or to five or to four or whatever is not guaranteed to be better. It's just going to be different. The only thing we can say for sure is it'll have one less card. So as soon as you do it, your opponent has divination on the stack. If you start thinking about it like that, I think you'll make better mulligan decisions in limited and then ignore all of this for constructed. Yeah, the next tip I was going to have, and this one's a really short one because you've talked about it a lot, is you don't mulligan enough in constructed. Yeah. Constructed is a different beast because the car, the decks are so finely tuned that you're really looking for specific cards in your opener to make your deck shine. So I'm thinking like maybe you're playing like a green ramp deck and you open it with a hand with no elves in it while you're playing four elves, you know, the odds that you have no elves, not very good. But if you look at your hand and it's like two lands, no elves and a bunch of six drops, obviously you have to send that back because it's not, it's not going to do anything. And the cards you draw off the top are are less valuable, you know, than the cards that you have in your hand. So in, in Constructed, you're generally looking for the cards that make your deck do the thing that it's supposed to do. And you're probably mulliganing not enough in Constructed. And I have this problem because I came from Limited to Constructed. Is I'll play be playing Green Black and I'll look at my hand and it's like, sweet, I've got three lands and two five drops 
and a six drop and a piece of removal. And it's like, well, this doesn't do anything. Yeah. Like, and that's exactly what I've heard people say in limited. The, the, the problem is like in limited, unless you just built a really terrible deck, it certainly does something. It either draws lands and you cast those awesome cards or it draws the cheap stuff and you cast them. Uh, it, it, it's worth remembering too, that like the effects in constructed decks are all super powerful compared to what we're doing in limited. Like you're not going to like have a combat trick. You're going to have card draw and planeswalkers and powerful removal spells. You may need to mulligan more in constructed if you're playing an aggro deck and you're used to playing a control deck. Like a control deck typically plays a lot of lands and card draw. So like most control decks that open up with five lands, a card draw spell, and a wrath are pretty happy about that. Whereas a, a, a an aggro deck, and, and I mean legitimate aggro decks, we don't really have aggro decks in limited. Boros is not really an aggro deck. It's an aggressive mid-range deck uh, that, that can certainly curve out on you. But like when we're talking constructed aggro decks, I mean like they've got 10-1 drops. That's the sort of thing you can see. And that deck can't keep, you know, five lands or removal spell and the only five drop in the deck because you're just going to draw garbage from there and it's not going to do anything. So as Dave is saying, if you're in Constructed, look at does, instead of thinking maybe does this hand let me play Magic, think does this hand let this deck do what it wants to do? And if the answer is is a resounding no, send it back. If it's, well, if I draw one of this type of card, then yes. So like if all you need is a two drop and the, the hand is absurd or, you know, one removal spell or maybe one card draw spell, then sure, you can keep it. Like think through how many versions of that effect that you have. Uh, but if it's just uh, like, like again, that five lander in an aggro deck or a one lander in a control deck, I don't think anybody would keep that. But it if if the hand just doesn't let your deck do what it's supposed to, you're going to need to send it back. Yep. And I think that's the hardest part for me is splitting my head between the constructed and limited mulligans right now. So, you know, what? another big piece of it is the scry rule, mm-hmm. because, again, in limited, when I when I mold a six and then scry, I hardly ever care what's there other than is it a land or a spell? Because mm-hmm. all I'm looking for is make sure I hit my land drops. Or, you know, make sure since I, I just mold the six and I have five lands, let's put one on the bottom so that I'm less likely to draw one. Whereas in Constructed, again, if I've got that six card hand that just needs a two drop, the scry is helping me a lot more because now I'm looking for something very specific as opposed to just is it a land or a spell. So I can actually get more value off of the scry. Yeah, mulligans are definitely less punishing in Constructed, especially with all the two for ones and, and things like that you can you can get. So, yeah. Okay, that's enough on mulligans. I feel like we talk a lot about mulligans, but um, that, that's good. It's a good place to start. All right, so the next place I want to get, uh, I want you to get percentage points, your, your win total up, is a concept called playing to win, but more specifically is you're, you're not playing to not lose, if that makes sense. So what I mean by play to win is I mean, what's the, what's the best example of this? If, if you have no way to win that you can see, play... No, this, this, is, this is more like playing your outs. Playing to win is taking game lines that will, that will push your game state forward closer to winning as opposed to playing defensively. So thinking, thinking about it from a, you know, turns of, uh, or terms of attacking and blocking, you know, the aggressor will win games of magic, whereas the defender generally won't. So you want to be pushing the envelope on your opponent. You want to be, you know, pushing your opponent to make tough decisions, pushing damage through where you can, 
um, and not sitting back and playing scared, I think is the best way to describe it. Does that make sense? It does. I've seen opponents do this like on a turn where I was tapped out. They've got a really good 3-3 with like some cool activated abilities and a lot of text. And I've got, you know, one 3-3. And then they've also got a bunch of 2-2s that are just sitting there doing nothing. I'm tapped out. There is no reason for them not to send that 3-3. Like if they trade it, they're unlocking three grizzly bears that are going to start attacking me and close out that that game. But instead they just kind of sat there and overvalued what that card did. I can't remember exactly what the cards were, but like that that's a perfect example of it. It's just deciding that you're going to sit there and not attack and let my 3-3 hold back your entire board when really it shouldn't be doing that. Like what would have happened if they'd done that is I'm not going to block it. Right? Like I I just can't do that. I I have the choice of would you like to take 3 a turn this turn and then 3 next turn or no damage this turn and then 6 and then 6. Right? Like that's going to kill me. So they they really didn't realize that their cool creature was actually unblockable. Uh, so they were kind of just sitting there and, and, and playing that way. There's also times where, like, if your opponent swings out at you, and this happens all the time when you're playing Boros Mirrors, you can try to block, um, or you can do the math and be like, okay, I, I actually do have enough damage to kill them if I swing back and they don't have a haste creature or a combat trick. So, like... I, I, if they have a haste creature or a combat trick, they're probably going to kill you anyway because you're going to try to block. You're not going to be able to block the haste creature because you didn't see it coming or they use the combat trick and kill one of your blockers and now you just don't have enough creatures to actually deal the damage. So I'll see people talk about how they're going to play around a sure strike by holding back a blocker to let them get it and I'm like, you just need to attack twice. If they have a sure strike, they're going to kill you. You're not going to recover from it. So like, put yourself in a position where you can win if they don't have it right? Instead of trying to play to a position where you can lose slower if they do have it. Like, I hope that that's coming through, but it's that situation of if they have the card, like, can I beat it? If I can't, I'm going to try to play in a way that wins if they don't have it. Because imagine that scenario where you're at four, they have a 2-2 flyer in play, they're at six, you have a 2-2 flyer in, in, in on the board and a sure strike of your own, right? Like, mm-hmm. And we'll talk about defensive combat tricks here in a little bit, but I might just attack them with it and then cast the you know another creature or something, whatever else I've got. I'm going to try to close out that game rather than try to be defensive and block. Because, you know, all of a sudden they untap Cosmotronic Wave, you've wasted your entire turn, you didn't get any damage, and now you just can't close it. Or they untap and remove your creature. Like, there's so many ways it can go wrong from there. Uh, so just play to win. Recognize that you win when their life total is zero. You, you you don't get any extra points for being at anything above one. Yep. Um, kind of on top of this, my next point was playing to your outs, but it also kind of plays to to the play to win uh, kind of angle we're, we're shooting here. So uh, playing to your outs is something that you kind of touched on here, but it's like, trying to figure out how you win this game or how you stop losing this game um, based on what's on top of your deck. So an out, uh, I believe the term comes from poker, um, but an out is a draw that... So so when you're, when you're counting cards in your deck that will significantly improve your position in the game or win you the game, we call that an out. And when you're playing to your outs is you're trying to set up the game state so that if you happen to draw one of those outs off the top of your deck that you know you've already you've already accommodated for that 
in your calculations in the game if you set up the board state such that this out is just amazing this card is amazing for you so a really good example of that is you know you and i are facing down here you're you're boros aggro i'm boros aggro and you swing out with a bunch of stuff and i can either set up a bunch of okay blocks or i can set up a bunch of you know a couple of okay blocks and and hold a couple creatures out of combat taking extra damage where i might not need to but keeping creatures on my side of the table so that if i swing back against you and i hit a sure strike or a direct current or something like that off the top that i can just win the game and and where you kind of make those calculations where you kind of figure that out is you know if i make all of these bad blocks where i'm losing all of my creatures do i have a chance to win the next turn and generally speaking you don't. Unless you have a Wrath in your deck, you're probably not recovering from that. So all you're doing is you're just buying yourself an extra turn, but what are you going to do with that extra turn? So this kind of factors into that play to win versus play to not lose. You know, quite quite frequently when you're in a desperate situation, going onto the ropes and taking a bunch of damage just to hope that you can kill your opponent on the crackback is sometimes you're only out right sometimes just ripping a removal spell off the top for your opponent's one blocker and killing them that's maybe you're only out to win that game but the good players the top level players you know they steal a lot of games from their opponents because they play to their oats or they play specifically to win like they will turn a losing position into a winning position like that because of the card off the top of their deck and you'll say like i can't believe how lucky that guy got or that girl got i can't believe that she ripped They didn't get lucky. They calculated it and they planned it out and they said to themselves, I have a 0% chance to win if I make this one play. So I'm going to take a bunch of extra damage instead of blocking everything for that 10% chance that there's a sure strike on top of my deck or removal spell on top of my deck that I can kill you with next turn. And I'm going to take that calculated risk because I am 0% the other way. So if you start to think about these things, you know, playing to your outs, um, it's really easy to calculate with re- uh, removal spells. Um, except, cause like, you know, removal spells, like if you're losing a game, you'd be like, well, I just need to set myself up so that a removal spell gets me back in this game. I think that's the easiest way to get into this mindset. And then once you've, you know, once you've kind of mastered that, then that factors into your calculating, you know, how are you playing to win? Or are you playing not to lose? Um, and you kind of factor all of that together. And even though if you don't know the math, that's fine. The math is actually quite simple. It's right. You know, I have two cards in my deck that win me the game and I have 20 cards left. That's 10%, right? Um, you know, once you just start to get in that mentality and that mindset, you'll find that your game starts to change and you start to change the way that you approach almost every single turn. Cause you're trying to set up these ways. Like how do you win? You're always trying to push that needle to hundred percent where that's your win percentage. You're always trying to win that game. It's like, how do you advance that game? And sometimes trying to play from a losing position, playing to your outs is the only way you can do that. I, I had a really good example of this today on stream where I made an attack. I, I had been very aggressive with the Selesnia deck with a light splash of red. Um, incidentally, both of the splashes were things that were capable of doing three damage to face. Uh, it was the the Lightning Helix variant and a Boros Guild Mage. And my opponent was at six. And I made an attack that included letting them eat a beetle that didn't have a counter and then trade off for a creature that was kind of a bad trade for me because it would put them at three 
So it was like, I'm not throwing away my board state. My life total is fine. They're not going to be able to attack me back and threaten me. And then being at three is much better for me if they're able to recover from here and start playing creatures. Because as long as they're at three, like until they get to the point that they actually turn and can start attacking, which could still take a while, I can just draw either of those two cards and win almost immediately. Uh, yeah. So that that's what I was going for there. Was And, and I had people be like, well, you're just throwing away your beetle. And that, you know, I would never trade this for that. It's like, well, I, I didn't really want to, but it's really valuable for me to have them at three because they're about to stabilize. Uh, and as it happened, I, I, I actually drew the three damage thing and killed them, uh, which was very satisfying. But like, I remember, I still got to draw more cards, whereas I knew at this point they're tapped out with two in hand. I, I need to just get in that last bit of damage while I can. Yeah, I think one of my favorite cards to play too is Inescapable Blaze. Oh, that's it's, so good. It's inescapable, right? And it's just like, well, you know. I'm losing this game. I'm going to set myself up where my opponent's at six and just knock the top of my deck a couple of times and see what happens. And you'd be surprised at how frequently it happens. It never happens if you don't make those attacks and get them to six. And then people draw the blaze and they're like, well, that'd be great if they were at six. And it's like, well, you held your three drop there all this time and never really had a good opportunity to block it. You know, even another way to think about this is I don't run no attacks, no blocks unless the, the creature is just obviously outclassed, right? So if I've got a creature in play and it can attack, I'm attacking with it. Now, obviously, if I have a 3-3 three, three and they have a 4-5, I'm not doing that. But I'm saying most situations, if I have a 5-4 and they have a 4-5, I'm swinging it. Because otherwise, they functionally terminated my creature, especially if I don't attack in and then they swing back and I don't block. Like, I think I can count on one hand the number of times I've done that. Blocking's yeah. awesome. I love to block. I like attacking. Attacking is my favorite. Okay, so this is kind of related to that. What you just talked about there is is the no attacks, no block scenario is something that we've talked about before. I just don't remember what episode it was. Is don't compound your mistakes. Um, I think you see new players doing this where they make a mistake in the game. You know, maybe they forget to play something or they don't play a land um, and they get syncopated something like that and then they're like well i don't want to be embarrassed and i don't want to play my land after i got syncopated for one if you make a mistake in game don't try to repair it by making additional mistakes don't make bad plays after bad plays make the good play after the bad play to try to repair that game state D does that make sense it does i i look at this as playing on hard mode because it, at the end of the day like the the only thing that matters if you're coming at this from a competitive standpoint is did you win the match, right? So if if my opponent goes over to his friends and says, I can't believe that idiot beat me. He played a land after I played a syncopate and then played a divination into a five drop, right? Like what Dave's saying is if I don't play that land and then my next draw is a divination and I draw another land and a five drop, maybe I don't have enough mana to play it because I didn't play the darn land and I was just too embarrassed. So when you make a mistake and you realize that you've made a mistake, what I'll typically do is step back for a minute and say, okay, I screwed that up. And like, it's even worse. I, I feel like for most of the people listening to this, it's even worse for me. There's 200 people watching. Like they know when I make a mistake. Like I, I'll usually say it before them. Now the, the fun part is like half the time they think I've made a mistake when I haven't. And I'll get to explain the, the superior reasoning that we're going through. Uh, but half, most of the time when they say, Travis, you screwed up, I'm like, oh, crap, I screwed up. And the best thing you can do there is just stop and reevaluate the way the board as it is. You've already cast the spell. 
you played into a, you know, this or that, or you did something wrong, or you made an attack that was just bad. I've accidentally bluffed damage by attacking with a, a, a flyer into a reach creature and had my opponent not block it. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. I can't believe that happened. But like, when you make the mistake, step back and then don't try to like disguise it from your opponent or anybody else. Don't worry about the story that's going to be told after the game because the only story that really matters was did you win or not. And a sure way to make sure that you don't is to make one mistake and then try to cover it up with another mistake. Well, this isn't the right play, but since I screwed that up, I guess I'll go ahead and use this removal spell now. Like, I didn't want to destroy their 3-4 their reach creature, but since I attacked him with this bird, I'll go ahead. And then they play, you know, the 7-drop dinosaur that farts out dinosaur babies. And you're like, well, okay, I guess I'm losing now. There was nothing I could do. But there was something you could do. It's say, you know what, I screwed up. The Windrake is going to pay for my sins. Uh, but we're going to hold on to this removal spell in case they play something that actually matters instead of a 3-4 reach. Sorry that really, that one was rather specific, but that's exactly what happened. I have a really good example of that from Dominaria Limited. So I was playing at a paper draft, and I had Tetiova in my deck. And I had Tetiova in my hand. And I had five mana and a land in my hand and then other things. And normally what you do in that situation is you play your Tatiova and then you play your land drop so that you're guaranteed value if your opponent has removal, which I put my opponent on. I assumed that they had removal. I played my land first. So I wasn't going to get value off Tatiova. Do you think I played my Tatiova? I hope you did. I didn't, and that was the that was compounding my mistake. Instead, I played a three drop and not a second spell that turn, so I did not use my mana efficiently. And then, do you think I played my Tatiova the next turn? No, because you didn't draw a land. Because I didn't draw a land. And I could have had Tatiova on the table and double spelled the next turn had I been smart and not compounded my mistakes. So yeah. take that as a lesson. Yeah, and like Dave's saying, it's so embarrassing to play that land and then go, oh, crap, I've screwed it up. But you've just got to play the, the Tatiova anyway. You've got to do it. You have to do it. Otherwise, you're just setting yourself behind. Did you die that game with her in hand? I won with her in hand. <laughs> <laughs> I was just better. too embarrassed to play it. But, like, yeah. like seriously, like, I wasn't thinking. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just like I, I was just sitting there, and it's like I even knew what I was doing, and I'm like why am I not playing this Tatiova? It's like, because I'm embarrassed. I'm just going to play this three drop. And then I'm like, I'll just play it next turn. And next turn never came. Yeah, that, that's one of those things that I do think has helped me from streaming. Is like, I do stupid crap all day in front of hundreds of people. And like, I just don't get embarrassed anymore at Bad Plays and Magic. Like, I'm yep. like, well, that's the type of quality gameplay that you're here to watch. Because if you play Magic for eight hours and you don't screw something up, uh, you're a robot. Um, I'm pretty sure the number of perfect games in Magic are very small, and they're usually ones that are, like, done on turn four. Yeah, you should watch my stream sometime. You could see more of them. Mm, I don't believe it. <laughs> Neither do I. Chat lethal. Um, all right. Two more here that I want to talk about. Uh, these, one applies to limited and one applies to constructed, but it's sideboarding. So this applies to arena in best of threes, obviously not necessarily best of ones, um, and then obviously on moto as well sideboarding in limited um what do you know about sideboarding in limited how important is it it is phenomenally important uh like a limited format begins as the 300 cards in the set but after you've played you know two games against the same opponent the limited format is the 40 cards that they have and the 40 cards that you have 
the rest of them don't matter because you've seen most of their deck. But I, I think the biggest level up for me in sideboarding was was recognizing that there are sideboard cards. There's obvious sideboard cards, right? Like destroy target blue creature. We see something like that every once in a while, color hosers. Or you'll see um, a naturalize effect, destroy an artifact or enchantment, or even plummet. And yeah, there have been formats lately where we would main deck artifact removal or main deck destroy target flyer. But there's some cards like that are, that are very obvious. Put this in your sideboard. You need it if they have this specific thing. But then the, the next level up is like once you know what your opponent's doing, you can make some changes. So maybe you're an aggressive deck and you have a bunch of two ones and you were looking to attack with those, but your opponent just has a ton of one threes. Well, maybe those two one first strikers actually need to get out of there and be replaced with a pair of grizzly bears that are, just don't have any text and an extra three drop that could attack past them. Because at, at that point, they're just not actually doing anything. Right? Or maybe we just want to get rid of them all together and just focus on playing three drops. You know, like maybe we're going to play, you know, more mana sinks or something like that. Uh, so I think like taking out X1s is a big one that I've done a lot. Like to the point where if my opponent showed me a, a Mephitic Vapors, for example, from Guilds of Ravnica main deck, I'd just take out all of my X1s. I'd be like, you know, they got me with that. But realistically, I only had a pair of two ones and a three one bat. I don't have to play those. I've got these other cards that aren't quite as good, but I can make sure they're never getting a blowout with that. Uh, so, so things like that that are just really reacting to what your opponent's deck is doing. Um, if they're stuffed with instant speed removal, I'd often just take out all my combat tricks, especially if they got me with one. Like yep. you, you don't see a ton of decks that are just jam-packed with instant speed removal, but you could see it in Dominaria sometimes. So when yep. I saw those, I'd just be like, yeah, I'm done. I'm not going to try to use combat tricks on you. Uh, I'll yep. just attack into your dude. So, like, those are two examples. Um, are, are there others that, that come to mind for you? No, those are the, the two best ones. I really like bringing in um, artifact and enchantment hate out of the board, um, especially if your your opponent has, like, really good equipment or something like that. But you're looking to bring in, in that case, you're looking to bring in um, that, that type of hate if your opponent has a lot of targets for it. So, like, a, a format that has a lot of, like, pacifism-style effects or, or things like that. Um, you know, I'm pretty happy to bring those effects in and I really like the transformational sideboard. You know, I, I really like changing my deck strategy, like becoming slower or getting faster or adding an extra removal or taking out combat tricks and things like that, really changing the, the dynamic of my deck, depending on what my opponent is doing. Um, you have to remember that you play two sideboarded games in the best of three and only one, you know, pre sideboarded game. So your sideboard is more important, um, from the perspective of you play more game sideboarded now that more applies to constructed than limited but i think it's true right like if you have a very good sideboard card um you know odds are that you're playing it more than your than your main deck configuration you know another one i just remembered that i've actually done a lot um this happened a lot in dominaria and i haven't played dominaria in a bit which is probably why it didn't immediately spring to mind but let's say i have a pretty mediocre artifact in my deck not something great. Let's say a short sword. And it, like, I didn't really need it, but it's fine. I had some sapperlings. I had some places to put it. I'm not making a neat combo. I just happen to have this short sword in my deck. And my opponent shows me a main deck, um, naturalize. I'm probably taking it out. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, that's the only thing that it could hit if I don't have any other enchantments or artifacts. 
Now, I'm, I'm not going to go take out an IC manipulator because they showed me a main deck naturalize. Sorry, you're going to have to find that naturalize. But if, if I can potentially strand a card in their hand for something that really sort of doesn't matter in my deck, I'm absolutely going to do that. Um, I've cut a mediocre flyer from a deck when it was the only flyer I had, and my opponent showed me a main deck plummet. Like, it just didn't matter in that matchup because I was trying to go fast and they were trying to go big. It's like, this flyer just doesn't matter. If I can get them stuck with that plummet in their hand, I'm absolutely going to do it. So I, I try to look for opportunities like that because it, like... Think of it from their perspective. If you have a main deck naturalized and you get to blow up a short sword, you're like, okay, it at least has a target, and who knows what other good stuff might be in their deck. I'm definitely going to keep it. It's like, cool. I, I can basically have the opportunity to make the mulligan without even knowing it, uh, and that, that's that's going to be beneficial for me. Yep, absolutely. Now, Constructed is a, is a, a lot of a different beast, I would say. Um, constructed sideboards are finely tuned pieces of machinery and what you're looking to do in in constructed is bring in you know you're changing the configuration of your deck obviously to fit the matchup but you're trying to make your deck do things differently sometimes than than what it is designed to do in the main deck um so you know a really good example of that is maybe you're playing a red aggressive deck or, or a white aggressive deck um, and your opponent's playing some kind of control, so you bring in an experimental frenzy so that you can get just more card advantage out of it or something like that, right? So sideboarding and constructed is an entirely different beast, and the thing about sideboarding and constructed is you really need to either have a guide, like if you pick up a deck and you, and you get a, the main deck configuration and the sideboard guide, you really need to study that guide so that you know what you're doing, um, because I think if you don't have any experience with the deck... Um, you know, sideboarding, like I said, is, is two out of the three games. So it's very important and you need to know what you should be doing. Um, I wouldn't go trying to come up with your own sideboards if it's a deck you didn't build, because generally speaking, the people that have designed these decks have designed the sideboards for a very good reason. Um, but what you can do is you can kind of tweak it for the meta. And that's something that you're going to need to do, whether it be an arena or your Friday Night Magic or something like that is looking at the decks that are around you and bringing in cards into your sideboard and out of your sideboard based on those cards that you're facing, based on those decks that you're facing. So if you go to your Friday Night Magic and there's just no Teferis and no control matchups on the other side of the table at all whatsoever, you know, you probably don't need that Sorceress Spyglass in your deck or in your sideboard, for example. You can replace it with something else. So sideboarding and constructed, you know, we could do 3,000 episodes on this. Um, I don't even know how to sideboard and construct it entirely, but what I do know is that what I, I do know that I don't know what I'm doing a lot of the time, so I need to go find guides usually. Um, and I just need to understand that sideboarding is generally finding an answer to something in your opponent's deck that you don't start with in your main deck configuration. Yeah, the the guide is the biggest piece of that. When I first started playing Constructed, I would find myself, you know, with a minute to sideboard, thinking about which cards I wanted to bring in. And I realized I, I shouldn't be thinking about that. The minute isn't so I can decide what to bring in. It's so I have time to bring it in. So like... If your goal is to win, and that's what you're focusing on, and you're net decking, because you probably should be if you're looking to win, like, again, something like 0.01% of us are brewers. Brew away, rare snowflake. But the, for the rest of us, we're going to have to net deck. Go ahead and get someone who's played that deck to explain the sideboard for you. And if they say to bring in this card that you don't think is good, just bring it in and play with it, because you don't know yet. 
my rule of thumb once I actually figured out what I like that I needed to listen to these people and I didn't need to be thinking my way through sideboarding, which I would in limited, right? Like that was the exciting part is think through the sideboard and really decide like, could I really take out all of my, you know, one power creatures to play around this incredibly narrow effect that they were playing? I can, wow, I'm going to do that. But like that thinking isn't there. They're playing blue, white control. I'm playing Golgari midrange. I need to go ahead and cut the Chupacabras because they don't have any targets. And I need to get in my sorceress spy glasses. Like I don't need to think about that. I just need to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest thing is find that guide, trust that guide. And after you've played 20 games with the deck, if you're like, you know, I've been bringing this in and I just don't like what it's doing. That's probably a meta call. For example, in my gold, gold garbage midrange deck, I eventually cut duress entirely from the sideboard because I felt like it just wasn't doing what I wanted to do against control. I'd, I'd hit, you know, their Teferi and then they just cast uh chemistry's insight and draw four cards and cast another one. And but it's, instead, I could sorcerer spyglass it and be like, "Answer this, yo." So for me, that was my duress replacement. But play some games with it first, and follow those guides first. And also important, you know, the cards that you're bringing in aren't also like aren't the only important important pieces. The cards you're taking out are also very important, oh yeah <laughs> right. Like you're you're against a control matchup that doesn't bring in creatures. Like you need to side out all your removal, right? Like there's there's things that you need to look at as well. It's not just cards that are coming in; it's the cards that are going out. All right, two more, and then we're gonna wrap it up. The first one is, and this is a limited topic: combat tricks, both defensive and offensive. So, I have I have two letters next to defensive combat tricks. Can you guess what those letters are? N and O. No defensive combat tricks, and this is a generality. But defensive combat tricks are bad. Why are defensive combat tricks generally bad? For the same reason that sometimes offensive combat tricks can be bad, and that is when your opponent is attacking you, they often have all of their mana up. Most players will figure out pretty quickly that if they're going to play a creature, they should attack first because part of magic is hiding information and concealing information. So if they attack into me and I go to block and then I use a combat trick, like there's the possibility that they could have one too or that they could have a response to it. The way priority works is the attacker gets to decide what happens first, then the defender gets to decide what happens. If the defender doesn't do anything, damage happens. If the defender does something, then the attacker can respond again. So it's terrifying for me to use a defensive combat trick because it means they've said, I'm okay with this trade. And now I'm saying, I'm not. Would you like a two-for-one, sir? It, and if they have the ability to get one, they can do it. Maybe their combat trick's better than mine. Maybe they've got an instant speed removal spell. So, like, defensive combat tricks are, are terrifying for that reason because they've got their mana up. And the same way combat tricks can be kind of scary when you're attacking, right? Like, if I'm attacking in and they've got all of their mana up and they just block my 3-3 three, three with good abilities with their 3-2... There's times where I'll just be like, all right, move to damage, right? And if then if they do something, all of a sudden I can decide, hey, is my combat trick better? Do I have an instant speed removal spell? Is there something I'd like to do here? Uh, whereas if they decide, yeah, damage resolves, my guy's just traded. So I, I may be in a scenario where I attack into their creature with my creature. They block, I have a combat trick and still don't use it because I feel like it's too risky. I just, I hate defensive combat tricks because, you know, they always seem to have it. They always seem to have something better. 
and you just put yourself in such a weird position uh, where you're reacting instead of being proactive. And I love being proactive in magic. That is my favorite. So I will do it in a very, very rare case where I have to do it in order to get myself back in a game. And again, this is playing to win or playing to my outs. Um, but I usually feel real bad about it. And I, I look real dumb when they have a bounce spell or a better combat trick or something like that. Yeah. All right. And finally, to wrap up, and this is something we talked about way back when. I think it was one of our first episodes uh, we, we touched on this. But um, study yourself and study other players. And I think this, you know, we can give you a lot of tips. We can give you a lot of hints, a lot of, you know, a lot of suggestions for how to improve your game, you know, from a general perspective. Um, but I think the best thing you can do and the best thing that I did when I started to play magic on online was recording my own games and, and watching myself play and looking at all of my mistakes, even looking at my wins, specifically looking at my wins and trying to figure out if there were better lines, you know, did I play perfectly, right? Learning from your mistakes and learning from your successes is, you know, one of the greatest things I think you can do when you're, you know, competing at things, you know, if, if you play sports or anything like that really evaluating your own play or your own ability and being honest with yourself, I think is one way that you can improve, you know, studying others. We live in a world where I can watch the best players in the world, play magic on YouTube, on Twitch, you know, anywhere I can read articles. I can, I can listen to podcasts. I can study, study, study. Um, and watching players with a purpose, watching good players with a purpose, whether that being trying to learn how do they how they draft, trying to learn how they play a game of magic, how do you play a specific deck? How do you sideboard this specific deck? Studying the game, you know, from the perspective of studying yourself and studying how other people's how other people play will get you a lot of the way to being a better magic player, I think. And being open to those ideas, I think is key. You can't just watch, you know, for for entertainment purposes and expect to really get anywhere. You kind of have to watch with purpose, I think. Yeah. For sure. And I, I would say to, to kind of add on to that, and I want to give them a bonus Travis tip too, um, but to add on to that, don't take anyone's philosophy on limited, for example, or constructed or whatever as gospel and then only follow it. You got to find your own way. But if you've got two people who are both very good at magic and they're disagreeing over a particular card, you can have your own opinion about it. That doesn't make one of them right and one of them wrong. It means that they may have slightly different styles or value things slightly differently. Yep. And you've got your one final Travis trip? Yeah, because just because I've had people asking me about this, and I think we could do a whole podcast about this, but I, I want to touch on it. How many lands should I play in Limited? Should I play 16? Should I play 15 because the algorithm makes it work? Should I play 17? Should I play 18? I don't remember who said this. It may have been LSV, um, but when I heard it, it really resonated with me. It was that you can't plan on being mana screwed. If you're mana screwed, there's nothing you can do about it. You don't have the lands to cast your spells. It sucks. You're probably losing the game, and there's just nothing you can do about it. But you can plan to be flooded. And what that means is, is kind of intentionally flood yourself and then make sure that you have mana sinks in your deck. Um, I did Guilds of Ravnica drafts today and prioritized mana sinks and ran 18 lands in all of them, including the Boros deck, and was happy with it in all of them. 
Uh, now the last game I played, my my mouth was hurting, and I, I made some really boneheaded plays, and we lost. But the earlier drafts did really well. Uh, we had cards like Dawn of Hope, and then various guild mages that we could dump that extra mana in. So what we're saying here is like, I am always going to lean towards playing more lands. Because if I have more lands, I'm more likely to be able to play magic, as Dave would say, cast my spells, not have to mulligan that often. Now, the downside is I'm probably going to get a little bit flooded. I may end up with six or seven lands before I really want them. So let's make sure I've got something on board to do with that mana. So a mana sink isn't kicker. A mana sink is a guild mage. A mana sink is, you know, spend four colorless mana, have this effect. Even if it's relatively minor and you wouldn't play a card... To get that, right? Like Dawn of Hope makes a 1-1 for 4 mana. You wouldn't play a 4 mana 1-1, but you're not playing a 4 mana 1-1. You're, 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 you're spending 4 mana and getting the 1-1 without having to spend an additional card for it, right? So that that's my biggest one is like, if you notice as I'm drafting and going through these, I'm always going to lean more towards 18 lands, even in formats where it's reasonable to play 16. And I think it is in Guilds of Ravnik if you're going to do an aggressive Boros deck. I'm just not going to do an aggressive Boros deck because it, it like if I get mana screwed with that aggressive Boros deck, I'm still going to lose. And if I get flooded, I'm probably going to lose. But if I hit the right mix, I'm probably just going to win. Whereas if I build with the idea of like, let's flood on purpose. Well, if I get screwed, I'm going to lose, but I'm less likely to because I'm playing more lands. If I curve out, I'm in good shape. And if I flood out, I've got a, a, a release valve for something to do with all of that excess mana. So that that's a bit of my drafting style, but I'll almost never play 16 lands. It terrifies me. I'm more comfortable with 18 and and a bunch of mana sinks. Perfect. We I probably could do an entire podcast on land bases and things like that. Maybe that's a, a one for the future. Draft 401? Something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up this week. A little, little over time, but that's okay. So uh, thanks again to Wizards for the uh, preview cards we had at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, thanks to Face to Face Games for the support and the host. And Travis, where can they catch you streaming Magic this week? You can find me at twitch.tv slash simulin. That's S-E-M-U-L-I-N. I'm also on Twitter under the same name. Yeah, and I'm at twitch.tv slash dcivilian. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Men for Moto. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time. Adios.